Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 355, Double Double Toil and Trouble. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Anna, Ashley, and Zachary for signing up already. As we've covered the Dark Ages, we've largely been at the mercy of the scribes. If they didn't write something down, there was almost no way for us to know about it. And one of the biggest casualties of this dynamic has been Scotland. The business north of the wall has been going on largely invisible to us for centuries. Not because Scotland was isolated or unimportant, just because the scribes were continually leaving them out of their sentences. Especially in the southern sources, which are among our best sources for this period. But at the early part of the 11th century, that was beginning to change. As you know, the kingdoms of the island had always been interacting. But now, the scribes were finally starting to find those interactions worthy of mention. Now unfortunately, our reliance on largely English scribes means that the Scots generally only emerge from the mists and enter the English record for two reasons. Either there was a major battle taking place that involved the English, and the one that probably immediately jumps to your mind was when King Athelstan fought at Brunanburh against a huge army that included King Constantine II of Scotland. The other most common reason why the Scots enter the record is when the English were eager to note that a Scottish king submitted to the English crown. Now, of course, given how often this seemed to happen, it seems pretty clear that none of these submissions actually lasted all that long. But what this means is that so far, we've mostly been learning about Scotland through the eyes of the English. And we have to work really hard and be very careful about how we piece together the real history of that region. Now, as always, we have place name evidence and archaeology that can serve as important bits of evidence for us piecing together Scotland's past. But these tools only get you so far when you're trying to work out the political system of a kingdom. For that you really do need written sources, and the richer the sources, the better. And while the sourcing for Scotland is getting significantly better, it's still not nearly as dense as we would like. And of course, as we're reading these documents, we have to always keep in mind that they were written for a purpose that wasn't necessarily historical. The writers all had their own angle and their own agenda. Now, usually when looking across documents like these, historians will typically privilege documents that were written close in time to the events in question and were from within the area they were talking about. So in this case, Scotland. And we actually do have some records that fit the bill. First of all, there's the Chronicle of the Kings of Alba, which is also known as the Scottish Chronicle. And this source came out of a monastery in Dunkeld. And what it is, is a relatively short account of events spanning approximately 140 years, going from the reign of King Kenneth MacAlpin to the reign of King Kenneth II. And unfortunately, that means that the scribes stopped working on the chronicle by the end of the 10th century. And as a consequence, it can offer a bit of background to what was happening in this story, but it can't actually give us any information about the 11th century because they were already done writing by that point. Our next Scottish source is the Duan Albanach, which is also known as the Song of the Scots. And this actually isn't a chronicle at all. 
It's a 27 stanza long poem that recounts the Scottish kings and then provides little tidbits about them. And if you're an American, you might remember that song you had to learn in school about all the state capitals. Well, it's a bit like that, actually. After the Song of the Scots, we have the Prophecy of Burkhan. And this was compiled in the Royal Court of Scotland in the 11th century, which means it's a contemporary source for the time period we're talking about. However, it's also a freaking prophecy. So it's not like we can treat it as if it was some sort of factual account of events. But it can give us some insight into how the Scottish court understood things at the time of the writing. Finally, there's a document called The Chronicle of the Scottish People, written by a man named John of Forden. And it was compiled in Scotland, it's detailed, and it goes into the 12th century. So on first glance, this is the good document. This is our best bet. But unfortunately, it has problems. John of Forden was writing in the 14th century which means we can't be entirely sure what was passed down to him accurately and what were myths or mistakes that accrued in the about 300 years between the event and this documentation. But those documents account for most of our Scottish record for what was happening in the 11th century. After that, historians begin to look at sources from outside of Scotland. And the most useful of those, the ones that were written in a contemporary period, were our old friends the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and the two Irish annals, the Annals of Ulster and the Annals of Tigernach. But there is an additional document from this period that provides some degree of detail as well. It's called the Orkneyinga Saga. And this was actually a performance piece that originally began as part of an oral tradition of the region, but luckily was written down in the late 12th century. But at the same time, what we're dealing with here is a saga. And like all sagas, it's primarily focused on Scandinavian matters and, of course, how the Scandinavians never lose a battle, are super heroic, and, you know, that sort of thing. But that being said, it is an oral tradition, and oral traditions are a practice of handing down history without writing. So the saga does offer some information to us. And luckily, because the Orkney-Inga saga is talking about, you know, what's happening in Orkney, the political affairs of what was happening within the kingdom of the Scots is mentioned from time to time. And so it gives us a piece of evidence that we can compare with the rest of the pieces of evidence to get a more complete picture of what was going on. Now, needless to say, none of these outside sources, the saga, the annals, or the chronicle, are likely to provide us with eyewitness accounts of what happened. Furthermore, the scribes were writing about events that were taking place outside of their culture, which naturally limited their own understanding of the events that they were trying to write about. For example, the English scribes would sometimes call random rich Scotsmen kings. And if you're not sure who you're looking at, some random rich dude might actually look like a king. But a Scottish scribe writing about the same event would obviously have known the difference. But these errors were bound to happen because the English scribes lacked the context to understand the culture that they were writing about. Similarly, the sagas call Scottish leaders jarls, and they sometimes mix up timelines so a father would rule before their son, that sort of thing. So when we're hearing about the Scots from the English, the Irish, or the Scandinavian sources, even if those scribes are doing their best, they can't fully understand what's happening, and as a consequence, are likely to misread some events. However, given all of that context and caution, 
historians have tried to piece together a picture of Scotland in the 10th and 11th centuries. And on the surface reading, Scotland, for centuries now, have been locked in a nearly constant state of conflict between five regional groups and then their descendants. And very, very broadly, these sources characterize the groups as the Picts in northeastern Scotland and the Isles, the Britons in Strathclyde, Cumbria, and Galloway, the Angles in southeastern Scotland and Lothian, the Scots in southwestern Scotland, and the Scandinavians in northern and western Scotland. But the real situation in Scotland was likely a great deal more complex than the simple story of near-constant war between five peoples. And the fact is, our records have a tendency to report conflict over cooperation. So the reality is likely that while wars did spark up from time to time, these regional groups had quite a bit of trade and cultural exchange that was going on throughout this period. And sure enough, even in our scant record, we see significant evidence of how these people were mixing. They were trading, they were intermarrying, they were settling. They had a lot of influence over each other just like has been the case for virtually all of human history. So while some of our sources will talk about the story of Scotland as one of conquest and of replacement, what we're actually seeing, what we're actually seeing is integration. And one of the more striking examples of this cultural interaction and assimilation is the Hunterston brooch. Now, this is a brooch constructed in the Irish style that was made either in the late 600s or early 700s. And on it, it features a Scandinavian runic inscription that was likely added later on in the 900s. And the runes state Male Brigda owns this brooch. Now, Male Brigda is a common Gaelic name. And the brooch itself was found in West Kilbride, which is the territory of the Strathclyde Britons. So what this means is we have a brooch made in the Irish style, found in the lands of the Strathclyde Britons, with a Scandinavian inscription saying that the brooch was owned by a woman with a Gaelic name. And that really does seem to be the broader story of Scotland. So as we learn about the intense political conflict raging between these regions, please understand that a much less sensational story was happening in everyday life. Scotland was, at this point, a land of many peoples who were slowly seeming to turn into one. And that critical cultural development and the day-to-day -day interactions that were happening all over Scotland and were being carried out by everyone from the king down to the serfs was never going to be something that the scribes would find worthy of mention, even though it was fundamentally changing the course of Scottish history. So keep that in mind. This was happening in the shadows the whole time. But that story that the scribes are telling us about, the one of regional infighting, is also important. And the ferocity of those regional conflicts put Scotland, and therefore Britain, on a path that would ultimately shape the North. And it's a trend you can see going way back into its past. But I feel like a really good starting point for talking about this is King Constantine II. As you might remember, he was one of the kings that fought at the Battle of Brunanburh in 937. And honestly, he was one of the most formidable Scottish kings to date. He was also one of the most long-lived. But when King Athelstan beat him at the Battle of Brunanburh, he didn't just suffer a military defeat, he also suffered a personal one. One of Constantine's sons died in that battle. And when that happened, all the fight seems to have left the old king. Not long after, he willingly gave up the throne and became a monk. 
And what happens next explains both how Scottish rule worked and also sets up the next couple hundred years of northern conflict. Based on the story that we've been talking about with England, you might have expected the throne to pass to Constantine's remaining son, Indulf. But Scotland had a culture that was distinct from its neighbors to the south. And it was a distinction that had deep roots. After all, the Picts hadn't been fully colonized by the Romans. And when the Gaels did end up bringing their culture to the island from Ireland, it was coming from Ireland, which was also distinct from much of Europe because they also avoided the extreme elements of Roman colonization. And as such, while England has roots with Rome and then later with Frankish concepts of rule, which were also heavily influenced by Rome, Scotland was different. And as such, they had a unique way of handling succession. Now, like their English neighbors, the Scots did have a royal dynasty that held the exclusive right to rule. This was the McAlpin dynasty, the line that was descended from King Kenneth McAlpin, who himself was descended from a noble line called the Canel Gavron, who were nobles from the old kingdom of Dalriada. And when Kenneth McAlpin became King Kenneth I, that old line moved east into the heartland of the old Pictish kingdom of Fortriu. So what we're looking at here is the establishment of a large kingdom that was wholly cut off from the Frankish form of kingship that we've become so accustomed to. And as such, what was happening in Scotland differed from England, Francia, and even Wales in some important ways. And critically, for what we're talking about right now, one of the biggest differences was how succession was handled. Because King Constantine II was dead, and the question was, who would be the next king? And what would happen to Scotland as a whole? Well, unlike Wales, Scotland didn't break up into small pieces, with subregions being handed out to different heirs. Upon the death of a king of the Scots, Scotland generally stayed together. But who would it go to? Well, succession was a dangerous time because it always ran the risk of a costly civil war. For example, you might remember how the throne of Wales generally jumped back and forth between the two main royal branches, the Dinevur and the Aberthaw, and that arrangement had caused Wales all manner of chaos. But Scotland was lucky, because their throne had been held exclusively by the family of Kenneth MacAlpin for generations, so that particular risk had been mitigated. There was just the small issue of who from that family would inherit the throne. And many kingdoms in Europe solved that issue by adopting primogeniture, meaning the throne would pass from father to son. Period. Succession would only deal with cousins, nephews, and the like, which are often called collateral branches, if the main line had no heirs. It was a simple solution, and it was clean. But it was not without its problems. If one of those sons happened to be a complete idiot, or Athelred Unred, well, you're pretty much stuck with him. But that wasn't a problem for the Scottish system, because they had a method that was a little more complicated than simple primogeniture. Unlike many monarchies, succession in Scotland was spread across large sections of the king's kin group. So that means brothers, uncles, cousins, and on down the line. So rather than the kingdom being passed down one branch, it jumped around between a bunch of branches. So you're not really looking at a line of succession, it was more like a bush, which is how families generally work. 
And for most of us, that familial branching only matters when we're trying to figure out how much brisket to bring to the barbecue. But for the Scottish nobility, that branching could determine whether or not you're just some moderately rich guy living on an estate, or whether you're a divinely ordained monarch with near unlimited power. So this barbecue got high stakes real fast. And they did try and limit who was eligible to some degree. For example, amongst the king group, they'd prioritize the sons of kings, but not the most recent king. Instead, it would jump around from various previous kings. So what that means is that rather than the throne passing from father to son, succession would often go brother to brother or cousin to cousin or even uncle to nephew. And when you start to see this type of succession happening in the South, in England, it's a sign that things were starting to get super unstable and you're heading for civil war. But in Scotland, this looping system of interlocking succession was actually just kind of the norm. That was how it was handled since Kenneth McAlpin's brother, Donald, inherited the throne after he died. And what this means is that after about 250 years of having a kingdom of the Scots, and after 23 Scottish kings, 19 of those were the sons of a previous king, but they didn't inherit the throne directly after their father. Instead, another member of the royal dynasty took the throne, and then they inherited later. It was a complex system as far as monarchies go, but there were distinct advantages. For one, it prevented power from being centralized into a single branch of the family. And that meant there was likely a bit more wiggle room if someone deeply incompetent came along and was born to be king. But this system also created intense rivalries. And as such, it was a source of political instability. In fact, this was such a deadly arrangement that the average lifespan for a Scottish king of this era was only 12 years after they took the throne. And they weren't dying from stress. By the 12th century, there have been at least 11 Scottish kings who were killed in order to clear the way for their successor. And some of those kings were even murdered by the person who was next in line for the throne. Being a member of the Scottish royal line was dangerous business. And in response, these kings would try and enhance their chances of survival by holding increasingly elaborate rituals of enthronement and invoking the divine right of kings. And while the earliest records we have of a king taking the throne at Schoon wasn't until the mid-13th century, it's likely that that ritual started long before this, and it may have been created specifically to avoid getting knifed by some impatient heir. And so, when King Constantine II died, his son Indulf didn't become king. Instead, it was Malcolm, the son of King Donald II, who took the throne. And they're all members of the same family, of course. In fact, Indulf and Malcolm were both great-grandchildren of Kenneth MacAlpin. But given the cutthroat nature of the Scottish throne, King Malcolm wasn't just going to trust that his cousin would patiently wait his turn. No, he needed to make a case for why he was a good king to have. And the best way to demonstrate your worthiness for the Scottish throne was to prove that you were a successful military commander. Because Scottish kings like English kings, were expected to be generals, not just administrators. And with half a dozen claimants lurking behind the throne, many Scottish kings started out their reign by launching a military campaign. And sure enough, we're told that King Malcolm started his reign by plundering the English lands as far as the River Tees. 
And I should point out here that the border of Scotland during this period was much farther north than it is now. So lands that we currently think of as Scottish, like Lothian, were actually English at this point. So Malcolm tried to shore up his political future by going and raiding those lands. But the real problem for Malcolm wasn't in England. It wasn't even in his own court. Malcolm's real danger lay to his north. His father, King Donald, had actually only reigned for one year. And his time was cut short even by Scottish standards when he decided to take an expedition into the northern regions of his domain. He went into a territory called Moray. And obviously, that didn't go all that well. And now, Donald's son, Malcolm, was on the throne. And Moray was still up there, doing its thing. And actually, medieval Moray is the most fascinating region you've never heard of. To start, it's a lot bigger during this period than it is now. At its height, medieval Moray went all the way from the River Dee to Ross, and from the North Sea to the Atlantic. This territory was massive. And importantly, it lay beyond the Grampian Mountains, which made it difficult to reach from southern Scotland. And this inaccessibility lent Moray a certain independence. Scottish kings, like English kings, ruled by their physical presence. They would travel their domain feasting, collecting taxes, and generally being seen by their subjects as acting as a king. Being physically present in your territory was a key aspect of the authority of kingship in Scotland. But getting to Moray was hard as hell, which meant the kings just didn't go there as often as they did to the easier-to-reach regions. And that is understandable, but that deficit resulted in Moray being a politically wild territory when compared with many other Scottish provinces. It also meant that Moray was culturally and politically distinct. And this cultural distinctiveness predated Scotland itself. Even Bede wrote about how the region was a bit weird and isolated from the Pictish regions to the south. There are also other 8th century writings that mention the Picts on one side of the mountains and how they are different from the Picts on the other side of the mountains. This mountain range ensured that there was a lasting, deep division. And when Scotland formed, and the Picts mixed with the incoming peoples from Ireland... Moray remained a part that didn't quite mix in all the way. If Scotland was fondue, Moray would be the bit of bread that fell off your fork and was now soaking things up. And this wasn't just some minor territory. Moray enjoyed rich agricultural land and multiple natural harbors all along its coastline. So not only could the region support its population, it also had tremendous economic potential. And naturally, Scotland had no shortage of ambitious individuals who wanted to capitalize on that. So Moray was also a magnet for settlers. And one family in particular took an interest. Do you remember how the royal dynasty of Scotland, the Canal Gavran, well, they weren't the only nobles that came out of Dalriada. There was another branch, the Canal Lorne. And these nobles were actually extended family members of the Canal Gavran. It appears that there are two extended branches of the same royal line that extended all the way back to the ancient kingdom. And at some point, this lesser branch settled in the territory of Moray. And this gave rise to two rival houses in Scotland, who were sometimes referred to as the House of Dunkeld and the House of Moray. And while they didn't hold the throne of Scotland, 
It was ultimately the Canel Lern, the House of Marais, that took advantage of the agricultural and maritime advantages of the region and arranged their holdings in such a way that they were amassing incredible amounts of wealth and power. And they were doing it in the same lands that were very difficult for their extended cousins, the kings of the Scots, to reach, thanks to the mountains. And that made it quite challenging for the kings to do what they normally did, which meant that the people north of the Grampian Mountains were unlikely to see the king and his court. But that didn't mean that governing and administration wasn't happening. Instead, the rulers of Moray were handling it. In fact, they had their own courts, and they would travel from place to place gathering taxes, feasting, and handling matters of justice. They also likely moved between their own personally owned strongholds. And if you think that sounds like a king, it does. But they didn't call themselves kings. Instead, they called themselves Mormares. And this title literally means great steward, and it dates back to at least 918. And we're actually not entirely sure how it began. But one important clue is that there are no Irish Mormares. And because of that, we're relatively certain that the title didn't come from the migration of the Scotty from Northern Ireland. Another clue to this mystery is that the title was most commonly found in the northeastern part of Scotland which is where Pictish culture dominated. So one theory is that the Mormare was a noble rank that was invented to appease the Pictish people of the region as they lost their independence and were put under the rule of the Scottish king. And sure enough, that title doesn't appear in the records until after the Kingdom of the Scots was established, which does lend credibility to the theory. It could also explain how Mormares wielded significant administrative and judicial powers, and in many ways, we're behaving a bit like underkings, just with a different title. One other possibility is that the Mormares were created as a part of a military response to the Scandinavian incursions. See, the Northeast wasn't just Pictish territory. It was also the region that suffered almost continual Viking raids. And sure enough, the Mormares weren't just rich. They were also empowered as generals. So it is possible that this title was created because you needed individuals marshalling the military strength of the lands that were most at risk. But personally, I'm more inclined to think that this was a title bump for Pictish territories who had just lost their kingship, and thus lost their independence. And Mormare wasn't an earned title. It was an inherited one, which implies that there were important noble lines reaching back to somewhere. Exactly where it reaches back to is a matter of debate among historians. For example, it's possible that they were descended from the local kingships, as in the old local ruling classes of Pictland, which then got folded up as Scotland consolidated power under one king. And this theory would suggest that the Mormares were originally descended from the original Pictish kings. But then at some point, but then at some point, the Dalriatic line moved in and took both the title and the power, and became the House of Moray. But one problem with this theory is that Mormare doesn't appear in the record until long after the decline of Pictish power and the rise of Scottish supremacy. So while the title might have been intended to give local regions a sense of unity under a local ruler, similar to what their ancestors enjoyed, the Scottish rulers might not have wanted that power to go to an actual Pictish ruler. 
And so even the original Moore mayors may have just been members of the extended Scottish royal aristocracy right from the start. But wherever they were descended from, and whatever the original purpose of the title was, by this point in Scotland's history, the Moore mayors commanded large amounts of territory where of the upper levels of the old Dalriatic aristocracy, they commanded the military power of the region, and in general, they functioned a lot like, if not exactly like, underkings. And this matter of strange titles might explain why the English scribes spoke about how Canute met with the Scottish nobles, who appear to have included at least one of these more mares, and mistakenly named them as kings. But whatever the case, Moray was a fiercely independent territory that saw itself as distinct from the rest of Scotland, and was ruled over by a rival branch of the royal dynasty who were empowered under the enigmatic title of Mormare. So we might think of these Mormares less as subjects of the King of Scotland and more like allies to him. Though not always, because new King Malcolm of Scotland had a beef with Moray. We're told in the Scottish Chronicle that Moray suffered significant attacks by the Northmen in 899 or 900 which we can take to mean that the region was at war with the nearby Scandinavians of Orkney, something that happened repeatedly during this era. And the scribes add that the Scots defeated the Danes in battle, and then they tell us that King Donald II was killed. And here's where it gets sticky. The sources don't agree on where he was killed. Some place the murder at modern-day Dunatar, and others say that it happened somewhere north, above Dunatar. And importantly, we should keep in mind that medieval Moray was huge, and the outer edge of medieval Moray was the River Dee, which was only a four-hour stroll from Dunatar. And that means that the record places the murder either within medieval Moray, or at least close to it. And then we have another record of the same conflict, and that tells us that actually King Donald II was killed far to the north at an area called Forez and Ferez was on the Moray Firth, and deep in the territory of the Mormares of Moray. And while our sources argue with each other about who killed King Donald II, most of them agree that he wasn't killed by the Northmen. And the prophecy of Burkhan states actually he was killed through treachery by the Gaels, as in the exact same folks who were holding the title of Mormare. Now I should point out that the prophecy of Burkhan is, you know, a prophecy, so it's important to read that with caution. But taking it all together, what we have for sure is a king who was either killed near to or within the territory boundaries of a fiercely independent region that was ruled over by a rival royal branch. And we have some sources that indicate that the killing was at the hands of the Gales and possibly at one of the main power centers of that very same royal dynasty. So it's all a little suspicious. Which brings us back to King Malcolm, the son of the murdered King Donald II. We're told that on an unspecified date, he gathered an army and marched into Moray. And there, he slew a man named Kellach. Now, unfortunately, we don't know exactly who Kellach was or why Malcolm decided to take an army north to kill him. But given the context... Many historians think it's likely that Kellach was the Moore mayor of Moray. Unfortunately, because Malcolm's campaign is undated, what happens next is thrown into uncertainty. Because the Annals of Ulster report that in 954, King Malcolm I was killed. 
So the obvious question here was, was he killed during that same campaign into Moray? I mean, knowing whether or not King Malcolm was killed by the rival dynasty of Moray would tell us a lot about this bizarre region, and also how it interacted with the powers of Scotland. But we aren't given any direct answers. Though tantalizingly, the Scottish Chronicle places the blame for the murder on the men of the Mearns. And geographically, Mearns is a territory that lay very close to, or possibly within, the domain of Moray. You know, depending on how successful the Moor mayors were at expansion at this point. But beyond that, the Mearns derives its name from being governed by a steward. The word for that was mare. So their name was a direct reference to who was ruling over them. And you might remember that the ruler of Moray was the great steward, the Moor mayor. So when you're hearing that the king was killed by the men of the Mearns, the men of the steward, and it's following what looks like a multi-generational blood feud with the great stewards of Moray. Well, there's at least a chance that this happened either during the campaign to kill Kellak or during a counter-campaign that was sent in retribution. Following Malcolm's death, Indulf, the son of King Constantine II, took the throne. And much like Malcolm, he bolstered his royal credentials through war, though it looks like he steered clear of Moray wisely. Instead, we're told that King Indulf launched a campaign against the English in Edinburgh and seized the town. And some have taken this to mean that he captured the territory of Lothian. But it's unlikely that he actually acquired all of Lothian. That was a conquest that would end up taking generations. But it wasn't a bad start to rule. And Indulf spent a solid eight years on the throne before he died in 962, fighting off a Viking army who was possibly led by the sons of Eric Bloodaxe. And then King Malcolm's son, Dove, or as the English know him, Duff, took the throne. And King Dove managed to rule for only a handful of years before the Annals of Ulster reported a battle among the Scots. And it's always bad when the Annals note that there is a battle among the Scots themselves. It's even worse when the Scottish Chronicle confirms it, and adds that the fighting was between King Dove and his immediate successor, Cullen, the son of King Indulf. Apparently, as was often the case, his cousin was getting tired of waiting. But we're told that King Dove won that battle, but something must have gone bad because the Scottish Chronicle adds that he was cast out of the kingdom. And the Annals of Ulster go one step further and tell us that King Dove was, quote, killed by the Scots themselves, end quote. But Scotland's a big place. So which Scots? Well, Scottish poetic evidence goes one step further and tells us that the king met his end at Fores, which you'll remember was the same power center of Moray where King Donald II was reportedly slain. And all of this is just a brief taste of one of the political problems that was faced by Scottish rule. In addition to the matter of Moray, there was also the issue with the Britons of Strathclyde and the Scandinavians. And then, of course, the English. Scottish kings had no shortage of problems, and every single one of those problems helped ensure that the kings of Scotland didn't generally last all that long on the throne. But following the death of King Dove, it looks like Moray calmed down a bit. And this might have been because Moray and Ross were both in sporadic conflict with the Jarls of Orkney. It was a conflict, actually, that would last about 200 years. And so that Scandinavian threat might have been keeping those territories too busy to focus on the Scottish kings to their south. Which meant 
that this was an excellent opportunity for the kings of Scotland to advance their position and expand their territory. Unfortunately, the two main lines of the royal dynasty of Scotland were also feuding. They weren't getting along all that great beforehand, and that civil war had not helped anything. So things in the royal court were getting ugly. And even without a war in the north, Scottish kings were not living very long. In fact, it got so bad that when King Malcolm's son, King Kenneth II, became king, it was only because his predecessor was murdered, which at that point wasn't even all that surprising. But if we're to believe the annals of Tigernacht, it was King Kenneth II who murdered him. So yeah, things were starting to go off the rails here. And later scribes tell us that King Kenneth II eventually tried to change the rules of succession so that the title of king would pass to the king's closest surviving blood relative, basically moving things towards something more like primogeniture, and therefore hopefully further away from this blood feud. But later sources also claim that there were some noblemen who were probably angered by this proposed dynastic seizure of power, who conspired to convince the daughter of the Moor mayor of Angus, a woman named Fenella, to join them in killing Kenneth II. And as the story goes, she was totally on board for this. Not because of politics. No, because King Kenneth II had killed her son. And it was time for payback. Now, I should point out that this story doesn't appear in any contemporary accounts from the time. Scribes who are writing during this period simply say that King Kenneth II was killed through deceit, and were left without any suspect or motive. Furthermore, if there were any changes to the succession laws, they didn't take, because after his death, King Kenneth II's cousin, Constantine III, took the throne. And it actually went this way a few more times, and Scotland had a few more incredibly short-lived kings, until Kenneth II's son, who was named after his grandfather, inherited the throne in 1005. His name was Malcolm. And King Malcolm II was apparently very aware of how much danger he was in, because he immediately went about securing his place on the throne. A later Scottish chronicler, John of Forden, tells us that King Malcolm II immediately fought a battle against the Scandinavians, which certainly would have bolstered his political position in the kingdom. And in the following year of 1006, we're told that Malcolm then invaded England and besieged Durham. But this campaign didn't turn out as well as the first, and Uhtred of Bamburgh defeated the Scottish army and sent them packing. Dealing with such a devastating loss only one year into his rule could spell disaster for the new king, especially considering how comfortable the Scots were with regicide. And it seems that in response to this situation, Malcolm II tried to lengthen his lifespan through politics. It was clear that this feud was a problem. The body count that it was racking up couldn't be ignored. So we're told that Malcolm began looking into changing the laws of succession in Scotland so that there wouldn't be such an incentive for murder. But as Malcolm's father, Kenneth II, taught us, changing the succession rules was the sort of long-term goal that you'd want to work towards quietly and then only pull the trigger once you're really sure that nobody is behind you with a knife. And actually, it looks like Malcolm II had started this project early. Like, way early. Likely, in fact, before he even took the throne. We're not given precise dates, but prior to taking the throne, it looks like Malcolm arranged a marriage between his daughter, Bethok, and a man named Crinan. Now, Crinan's background is a little unclear but it seems that he was the abbot of Dunkeld, which might surprise you 
given that he was getting married and abbot is, you know, a pretty religious title. But the abbot of Dunkeld at this point was essentially a hereditary landholding. It was a feudal title that reflected familial power rather than personal piety and religious devotion. And some historians also think that Crennan was the more mayor of Athol, a highland territory that straddled the Grampian Mountains, basically an area that's now modern-day Perthshire. So Malcolm had arranged a marriage with a high-born figure who held religious power in the influential region of Dunkeld, and who might have also been the ruler of the wild territories on the Grampian Mountains. Clever. And then at some time around the turn of the century, King Malcolm II became a grandfather, and Crinan and Bethok named their firstborn son Duncan. About five years later, King Malcolm II was now on the throne, and he was still concerned about that threat to his north. Because looking through the records, it appears that he turned his attention to two of his biggest non-family threats, Orkney and Moray. The threat that these two territories posed his rule may have lessened because they'd been fighting with each other so much, but the fact remained that both regions had an impact upon the lifespan of Scottish kings. And so King Malcolm II started to make plans. Not for battle, no, for another wedding. The king needed peace. And he had daughters. So according to the Orkneyinga saga, Malcolm arranged a marriage between one daughter, who the saga names Olaf, and the Jarl of Orkney, a man named Sigurd. And shortly thereafter, in 1009, they too had a son. Olaf and Sigurd named him Thorfinn. That just left the issue of Moray. The region that had been such a problem that it had been linked to the deaths of his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and even his great-uncle. Something had to be done about Moray. And this marriage alliance with Orkney probably gave King Malcolm II a decent amount of leverage, since Moray was still under threat from the Scandinavians of Orkney, not to mention the Scandinavians across the North Sea. Furthermore, the Orkney Inga saga does suggest that this era was marked by almost continual fighting between Orkney and Moray. So the more mayor of Moray, he was a man named Finlay, might have been wanting a little bit of extra protection at this point. And so, Malcolm II started to plan another wedding. And both more mayor Finlay and King Malcolm II had reasons to want this to work. So a marriage between Finlay and a close relative of King Malcolm II was formed. Now, unfortunately, our sources get particularly bad at this point, partly because they actively avoid discussing women, so we're not entirely sure what happened. But later accounts claim that Finlay married the middle daughter of King Malcolm II, though contemporary accounts don't mention this daughter. Furthermore, later accounts disagree with each other, and some imply that the woman in question was Malcolm's sister, while others suggest that she was Duncan's sister, which would make her Malcolm's granddaughter. Though this really doesn't make all that much sense when we look at other records and the timeline. And as such, most historians suspect that Finlay married King Malcolm II's daughter. And with this marriage, it does appear that King Malcolm acquired a certain degree of peace and fealty. Because following this marriage, in the Duan Albanach, King Malcolm II was referred to as the King of the Mount. A title that suggests that he ruled over people on both sides of the Grampian Mountains. So King Malcolm II got the stability he wanted. And as for Mormare Finlay and his wife, well, they got a dynastic connection and also a baby boy. They named him Son of Life, or in Gaelic, Macbeth. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast and help us keep going during this really uncertain time, please sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Kill of the night.